Hey, Camp Kids. Welcome back to the Camp Kids Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Bob, and I'm on a mission to bring together a community of camp people from all around the world. Whether you are currently in your camp experience or it's been a while since you've been at camp, when you're with us, you're at home. In this week's episode, we meet Aaron, who currently consults for camps in programming and in strategic planning. Aaron started his camp career at Camp Cory, where he went from camper to dishwasher overnight in his teenage years. Aaron worked at camp all throughout his college experience and even stepped into the role of program director at a time of great turnover. After completing college, Aaron left the camp world to climb the corporate ladder. And once he got to the top, he found out that he wasn't fulfilled. So he and Dave have begun consulting for camps, helping them find their vision and letting it shine through their programs. So without further ado, let's hear it from Aaron. Aaron, welcome to the Camp Kids podcast. We're so excited to have you here. Why don't you tell us who you are and where you are speaking to us from today? Hi, Joe Bob. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. My name is Aaron Proietti. Um, I live currently outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, although I've lived all over the place. Colorado before this, Maryland before that, Virginia before that, Georgia before that, and New York State is where I grew up. I am currently a consultant, self-employed, and I do some program consulting for summer camps and some strategic consulting for summer camps, as well as speaking at conferences. And I'm sure we'll get into some of that as we talk. Oh, that's incredible. I absolutely love hearing that. Well, tell us a little bit about your background as a camper. Did you go to camp when you were younger growing up? And if so, with what organizations and for how long? I did. It was YMCA Camp Cory in upstate New York. And I believe you've had some other guests on who, who've spent time at this magical place on Cuca Lake in the Finger Lakes region. Um, I was seven or eight my first year. I believe it was eight. And my parents were quite worried and they wanted to send me for one week. But I kind of already knew that it wouldn't be a problem to be away from home. And so I convinced them of two weeks off the bat. And it wasn't a problem at all. And I returned every summer as a camper through 1991 or so. Um, kind of unique through my path at Camp Cory is that Camp Cory is known as a sailing camp, but I never tried my hand at the sailing program. I stayed in what was called the general camp for my entire duration as a camper. We like to call ourselves landlubbers. Uh, <laughs> we weren't out on the water. <laughs> uh, but I did eventually become waterfront director. So I spent a fair amount of time on the waterfront, just not in the sailboats. Funny story, as a camper in 1991, which was my final year as a camper, I was uh, 15. After my session, which was a leadership and training session, the camp director asked if I would stay on as a dishwasher for the remainder of the summer. And we got me a work permit that day. And I went from camper to staff literally overnight and never looked back from there. Oh, my goodness. How old did you say you were? 15. Yeah, I got paid $50 a week to wash dishes. <laughs> Hey, that sounds like a great deal. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and, and stay at my favorite place in the world. <laughs> so then was that it? Then you never returned back as a camper. You always returned back as a staff member then from there on. Yeah. The next summer was my CIT program. So for two short weeks, I was treated like a camper again. But then as soon as we were released out to, uh, to the cabin setting, I, I was back in the swing of things as a staff member. That's funny. And I think some camps still operate kind of like that today too, where they'll put you as a camper here. And then once you've got your certification or you've done your training, then you're like, all right, and now we're staff. Yeah. <laughs> so. it's, it's a little shocking. <laughs> oh my goodness. So then how long were you a camp staff member for? Yeah. So from that point, 92 onward, I progressed through the ranks in the off season leading up to 1997, the YMCA replaced the executive director and brought in a new executive director, 
to oversee two overnight camps. And shortly after that move, the longtime camp director of Camp Corey chose to step down. And it was too late to replace him for that upcoming summer. So it was maybe February or March of 1997 when I got this news. And the new executive director was scrambling to assemble a competent staff for the summer. She was going to serve as the interim camp director as well as handle the executive director duties. As a result of, of Jerry Elliott, the camp director, stepping down, a lot of the staff chose not to return when they learned that he wouldn't be returning. I was young. I didn't have anywhere else to go. I was 21, <laughs> still excited about progressing through the ranks at this camp. So I decided to stick with it. I was hired, I believe, as the junior village head overseeing the seven to 10 year olds for that summer, but that wasn't the, the job that I wanted. So when I arrived for training week, I learned that the person hired as the program director didn't want that job. And we convinced the ex executive director to let us switch positions. Oh. So that woman and I were the two most senior returning staff members. She was, I believe, 24. I was 21. And there wasn't another soul on the campgrounds uh, over 20 years old, which was a pretty oh wild God. time. The executive director chose to split her time between all of these different locations. And so I ended up kind of serving in a camp director capacity, not knowing that's what I was stepping into. And it was just this incredible year of growth for me as a human being, learning some hard lessons along the way, which really taught me how to lead. It was, it's not the easy lessons that teach you anything, but a lot of missteps with handling staff members and handling parents. And I, I got better at it by the end of the summer, but I just had no idea that's what I was walking into. You were just emerging as an adult yourself and now we're expected to communicate with parents. <laughs> yeah, with no, yeah. with no knowledge. You know, my first, my first conversation with a parent was the phone was ringing and there was no one there to answer it and I answered it and I didn't realize it would be a parent with a request or a you know demand of some sort I just wasn't ready I probably was not very good at it in retrospect it sounds like that's not pretty typical for Camp Corey staff it sounds like normally there's a lot of older adults older individuals that can kind of guide through this process but yeah when you have a big turnover like that it makes it very hard to fill those key leadership positions. So good on you for stepping into it and taking it by the reins. That speaks a lot about, about you and your character. So I'm curious to know what helped you transition into becoming a consultant now for camp? I have a long winding career path. While I was that program director, I was in graduate school for math of all things. And okay. in, in 1998, that was my last summer at Camp Corey, which incidentally was the first summer of the next long camp director's reign. So she, you know, I was able to pass the baton on to a camp director who would stay for quite some time in 1998. Nice. I got hired by a major financial services company to do data modeling and risk analysis and all sorts of quant stuff, which was so far from the summer camp space that I kind of had fallen in love with, but I did really enjoy that job. And I progressed through the ranks in the corporate world, eventually to kind of my dream job in the corporate world, which was chief innovation officer of a global insurance company. And this was in the early part of the, the 2010s, you know, 2011, 2012, right in that range. And I realized I didn't feel complete. Even though it was my dream job in the corporate setting, it was not who I wanted to be as a person. And it was so demanding that it effectively was who I was as a person. And so something had to give. In 2016, I chose to kind of escape the gravity of the corporate world and step back. Took a year to decompress coaching soccer for my kids. Uh, and then started to just start to do things, which gave me energy. And one of those things was to start getting back into the summer camping space. The snowball didn't start rolling downhill until, I believe, late 2019, when I was approached by Camp Corey. And I was asked to chair 
the 100th anniversary celebration committee as an alumni representative. And part of that would also be joining the board of Camp Corey. I said yes, and I got a co-chair to, to come along for the ride with me. We both joined the board and we're still on it today. And so that got me back in. And from there, I started to just look for opportunities to be involved in summer camping, whether that's with longtime friends who were still in the business, helping them with strategic planning or whatever skills I could draw from my corporate background to help summer camps. And at some point, I think it was early 2020, got the opportunity to consult for a camp up in uh, Maine and just absolutely loved doing program development consulting. And so it's, it's work that I would welcome and look for all the time uh, at this point going forward. Wow, that's absolutely incredible. And it sounds like you had a lot of support from your family too in navigating this kind of career change. What are some different things that you've gone out and consulted for, like specific programs? I know you mentioned going up to the camp in Maine, but what are some specific things that you do with that? Yeah, I'll start with the camp in Maine. It was a, a program consulting gig, but it certainly anytime you're trying to change programming, it's a good practice to have some intent behind that. So try to understand what you're trying to accomplish through the programming. And in this case, the camp was trying to level up their social and emotional learning capacity. So Dave Gadu, who I believe you've had on as well, um, yeah. who is an educational expert and, and, and myself, who's kind of more a strategy expert, we got together and took on this project. And I handled it from, really from the strategy side, which is trying to understand what the camp was trying to become, you know, what challenges was it facing, how would it overcome those challenges. And what we got into doing was a lot of work on values. And, you know, I know the Girl Scouts has, has done a lot of work on values. The Y has done a lot of work on values. In the best possible scenario, values should be used to inform the design of the program. So if you want to teach kids about caring, honesty, respect, and responsibility, in the case of the Y, you should design programming, which has those values inherent within it. So we did this great exercise with the camp in Maine to understand what their aspirational value set was and to start to design those values into the programming. And from there, that took Dave and myself out into the conference space where we started to present at conferences. And that led to more engagements. A lot of day camps, surprisingly, are, are looking for help with programming. And the, the theme we're seeing there is that a lot of day camps treat their programming like daycare. So it really is about supervision. It's about forming a perimeters around the camper and just letting them experience whatever program areas there are, but there's not a lot of structure. And, you know, I don't think in many cases they earn the camp name. So we help them kind of unlock that, that bad habit of just being supervisory or treating it like a daycare and try to unlock the magic that we all know exists within the resident camping space. And beyond that, I do strategic consulting for a few whys and uh, uh, a, lot, a lot of strategic planning, really, is, is the, the other thing. Absolutely. I 100% relate to your comment about day camp, trying to just more or less be like a daycare in sense. I mean, I currently work for two day camp facilities now and they have the bones of resident camp on the property site. And there's like some reminiscence of that resident camp feel, but it's very much just want to shove program in your face, get you from point A to point B. And yeah, we're losing the sense of really bringing in our values into that. So I'm so glad that you're diving into this work to kind of to spread that camp magic because it absolutely can be there. You can take every moment to make it whimsical and, you know, share 
the values and the love that you have for the organization or for the camp itself in there. So I love that you're doing that. Yeah, it's a blast. It's a blast. I'm staying connected to my youth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. I feel the same way. Well, I'm very curious to know, since you said that you were on the committee for the 100th year anniversary ceremony at Camp Corey, I would love to hear about what that event was like and how was it going into that, planning it and everything with the strategies and planning behind all that. It was supposed to be a fairly light lift, but as we started (laughs) to get into it, we had some grand aspirations. A simple kind of back of the envelope calculation showed us that if we got so many people from the 1940s or 1950s, or alumni in in particular, 1960s, 1970s, that we imagined a scenario where a thousand or more people could come to this event. And so we had to design for that. We didn't want to design for 200 and, and have to turn people away. It's better kind of to design for scale and figure out how to do all of that. And then the pandemic hit, right, as we started this planning. So what was supposed to be a one-year planning phase turned into three years of planning effectively because we had to kick the can down the road and postpone the celebration until late 2022, which was a blessing and a curse. Certainly from an experience standpoint, it was a blessing because we got to be very intentional about what the weekend was and what it wasn't uh, to design the different programming of that weekend. And that brought me back to my program director days trying to figure out, you know, how do I move people from space to space and get them excited and have a peak moment and all that stuff we designed into the weekend. The curse was that it took three years and it really became in many weeks, it was 10, 20, 30 hours of working on this thing trying to get it just right. Uh, But I wouldn't trade it for anything. The event was a tremendous success. We had over 400 people there. We kept most of it outside due to COVID protocols still. And we were able to get some great big tents, carnival tents on space or party tents on on, on site. Had a lot of different activities going on. It really was wildly successful with the peak moment being a fireworks show out over Cuca Lake on the main day, the Saturday of the celebration weekend, which just went on forever and ever. You know, we, we told the folks, do as many fireworks as $10,000 will buy. <laughs> oh, nice. And it was spectacular. <laughs> oh, that sounds lovely. I'm so glad that it went so well. And from what it sounds like from my conversations with Beth, too, this is really the beginning stages of this alumni association. Am I correct in that understanding? Yeah. And in fact, one of the talks that I do at camping conferences now is on alumni associations. And my target audience is the organizations themselves. And the common misstep that an organization takes is to treat an alumni association solely as a fundraising opportunity. The organization sees alumni with with dollar signs in their eyes, right? Mm -hmm. And so when an organization designs an alumni association, they're designing it for how do I ask these people for money? And we went from a different perspective. So Randy Stern, who was my co-chair and I, we decided to re-engage with the alumni during the summer, in the off season, on the, you know, the shoulder seasons, holiday parties, all of these things with the sole purpose of bringing the Camp Corey alumni community together. There's no ask for money. There's no expectation that anyone on the committee who's planning this is giving money. That will come, right? We, you know, th- there will be asks for money at the right point in time but the alumni association doesn't exist for that. And that's what I talk about at conferences. It was just great to kind of build this from scratch and to look at the different organizational schemes for alumni associations and select the best one for us. A volunteer-led subcommittee of the board uh, is is the the official structure of of the alumni association. And everyone, if you cherish your time at Camp Corey, you're considered an alumni, 
and you're considered a member of the alumni association. There's no membership fees or dues or anything like that. That's awesome. And I know that there are a lot of listeners that I have. I mean, granted, a lot of them are still in their camp career and they're very young, but I do have a lot of listeners who are maybe they're not a part of an alumni association because the organization hasn't offered something like that, but would love to be able to give back in some way, shape or form. So it sounds like you guys kind of really started this and it, and as long as you've got people that are willing to to help out it's not all, not all on one person's shoulders it can be done we didn't design it you know with the camp in mind we designed it in order to get people to come to the 100th celebration and future celebrations now as well and so that was pretty powerful you know we're not trying to inform the camp's strategy we're not trying to be anything more than just a collection of alumni who enjoys talking about summer camping Although we do want to preserve the history and the legacy, and there's, there's all of these great purpose statements that we've come up with, it's not to stand in way of progress for the camp, and it's not to try to weigh in on what the camp's doing. And I know that a lot of camps have that fear, but if you work with your alumni to stand up this sort of community, alumni community, it can be very powerful for your fundraising down the line and just for having that sense of community. What's really fun is we've got a current staff member on our alumni committee. So our alumni committee spans people from the 1960s who attended Camp Corey in the 60s to people who are still there today. And they all have equal weight and an equal voice in what we're doing. It's quite a blast. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, especially to have a current camp staff person there that is really unique and gives you an insight of, you know, what's going on nowadays, too. So are you guys still continuously meeting as an alumni committee? Are you guys planning anything in the upcoming future as well? Yeah, we, we meet monthly. Very often we'll go far over an hour. You know, we'll just keep socializing and talking. <laughs> we have open meetings twice a year where we invite anyone from the Camp Corey community to attend. Although really, if anyone wanted to attend any of the meetings, they could just ask and they're welcome to come. <laughs> There's no secrets, right? <laughs> <laughs> Some of the great stuff that we planned. So we now have a, a ritual of having a virtual holiday party on Zoom the first Friday of every year. Um, so that's that's kind of spawned into existence. Uh, we have committed to facilitating the the alumni reunions every fifth year of the anniversary cycle. So we're only two and a half years out now from the next one. So we'll start planning the 105th very shortly. And other than that, you know, we, we want to be involved in the summer. So we do a lot of engagement with the current staff throughout the course of the summer and with the parents and campers volunteering during the checkout times, for instance, and, and making sure that we can help out summer staff in a meaningful way. Oh, very cool. So you guys do get a chance to go back more than just once every five years. I mean, if you're involved, it sounds like you are just as much as part of the camp as the camp staff are. So that's, that's really wonderful. Yeah. Are your meetings typically held virtually then? Yeah, we're located all over. Yeah. I, I'm outside of Philadelphia. You know, the camp's in, in New York. Uh, Randy, who's the co-chair, she's outside of Boston. So we are on Zoom. And, the, you know, the pandemic facilitated that. It made that the norm. And yeah. I don't think we'll ever go back. Oh, absolutely. It's just so easy to hop on Zoom and connect everybody from all across the world. So sure. I love that. Well, I'll just make the offer to your listeners that I'm happy to hand over the blueprint on an anniversary celebration planning. We've got all sorts of documents, project plans, all this stuff. So if anyone wants to get in touch with me to, to get any insight on what it takes to have a great celebration, I'm happy to share. Oh, thank you so much. I love that. I hope some of our listeners will take you up on that opportunity. I know that you'd mentioned working with people with their values, but if they're looking to kind of up their program design or camp strategy setting, what are some tips or tricks you might give them to do that? Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so 
but you know, the most important thing to start with is having a vision. And there's a famous saying, I've had trouble finding the, the correct attribution. Best I can tell, it's a Japanese proverb, but it really hits the nail on the head. And the saying is, vision without action is a dream. Action without vision is a nightmare. And the implication for strategy setting is that so often we want to get into the execution phase and we want to put a new program in place or end a program or install a new training or do something without having an end goal in mind that just continues to spin the wheels, doesn't get you unstuck, doesn't get you moving towards anything that anyone's bought into. So this idea of having strategic visioning at the forefront of any strategy planning or program redesign exercise, it, it's critical to get everyone bought into what it is that you're trying to create. In some cases, I've seen camps look out three years, you know, pretty common to have kind of a three-year strategic plan. In other cases, it's five or 10 years. And very often, you know, I'll challenge the camps to come up with something that is highly aspirational, such as we will be the leader in summer camp in, in our state, and here's how we will measure that. And they're coming from a place where they're nowhere near that. And so, but to have that aspiration and th then start to consider what would it take to move us from where we are to where we need to be, that unlocks the strategic vectors or strategic priorities, if you will, which if you don't have the vision, you cannot prioritize anything. And so your strategy ends up being very opportunistic. And a lot of camps have this in place, which is there's a risk at the camp that needs to be taken care of. So they change a policy or there's a parent that complains about something. So they change the programming or the insurer says such and such or a grant gave them some new program equipment. Right. And that informs their development. But it's not strategic. It's very opportunistic and very react reactionary. So I try to shift that philosophy to being one that's very intentional mindful and cutting edge. So let's move summer camps from where they were pre-pandemic to where they need to be with the current challenges of the, of the world post-pandemic. And, uh, you know, camp professionals love having that conversation because we all know the mental health needs of our youth are not being met and there are different challenges and there's, there's trauma that is not being worked on during the summer months that summer camp has this opportunity to address. Are you familiar with like the seven habits of highly effective people? For sure. Absolutely. Okay. Cause yeah. you were giving me all of the begin with the end in mind, one of the seven habits there. And it sounds like I'm an educator who has been at leader in me school. So we've fully adopted those ideas and have, I've seen them work when it comes to the educational side of things. So I'm so happy to see that you're kind of utilizing that goal setting into the camp setting. Now, when you've been working with camps, how do you set some of those goals? And then how do you measure those goals to be able to attack that vision? There's power in co-creation. So if you have people who have influence over the camp's programming, whether it's board members, year-round staff members, influential alumni, whatever, you know, donors, bring them into the conversation so that their voice is heard and so that they're bought into the change first and foremost. Because when you set an aspirational strategy, you are changing the camp. You're saying, we are, we're in this one spot today, but we need to be in this different spot. So the more work you can do upfront to socialize and gain that early commitment to the strategic change, the better. And the best way to do that is co-creation. So invite people in. And what I do is one-on-one -on -one interviews very often. You know, I will call the board chair I'll, you know, and, and have a one-hour conversation and really allow them to 
paint a picture of success for me. This is known as like the newspaper headline exercise in articles written about your camp 10 years from now in the newspaper saying what a tremendous success the, the camp is. What does the article say? And you ask them that question. But I also like to do a, more of a visioning exercise, which is you're driving into the camp 10 years from now. The camp has, has completely changed and it is now exceeding everyone's expectations. What do you see? And you ask these people this question to kind of envision success and write it all down. <laughs> you capture it all and then look for the common threads. And very often you'll find them. Um, and they're very different than what the camp is on track to deliver today. And so that gives you your, your roadmap, which is maybe people talk about giving more opportunities for urban communities to go to summer camp. You know, maybe that's what they talk about in their vision but you're not on that path to deliver that today. If we bring everyone together and say, well, that's our vision. So what's it going to take to get there? The priority becomes clear. It is all about that co-creation, that shared visioning exercise, whether or not someone knows they're participating in that doesn't matter. <laughs> it's an easy sell to them. If you go back to them and say, I heard you say this, and this is what we're putting in place. Yeah, absolutely. Now, who is usually typically involved in that conversation? Are you pulling in mostly the year-round staff? Are you pulling in season staff and campers as well? It depends on how much time we have. Best practice is absolutely campers and parents. Those are your customers. You know, in some sense, the camper is your product, not your customer, right? Uh, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you're creating great human beings. Um, so you have to talk to the parents and what are their needs and what are they worried about? What do they see and where, what, what media do they consume and what do they want for their kids? And you know, that's such an important input point that we, we often neglect. And not only the parents of your current campers, but the parents of your prospective campers. Um, you'll never be able to meet the needs of a population that you, you don't currently serve without having an intimate understanding of the needs of that population. So you have to get out and talk to them. And then certainly the typical cast of characters would be the year-round staff, the executive directors. If it's a bigger organization, the CEOs, all those people, you know, get their input as well. It's very important. And then the board members, you know, that you have these dedicated volunteers who want to be part of this camp's development. Give them that opportunity to be part of it. It's a, quite a mistake to try to do it and then show it to them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it should be a co-creation process. Absolutely. I'm thinking to mostly Girl Scouts, since that's the organization that I belong to and have a lot of experience with. And we don't have specific board members for the properties or for camps themselves. So in this instance, would you also, even though they, they oversee a lot more than just the camp, would you also include them as well too, even though camp is just one little aspect of what they're over as well? If they have the power to stop whatever it is you're doing, absolutely, you should include them. <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> they may say no, right? They may be too busy. You know, they're probably volunteers. They're probably serving in their professional capacity much greater right. than they are serving in their board capacity. But if you give them the opportunity to be involved and you, you bring them on site and you ask them questions and just listen, you'll get a lot out of that and you'll get more out of it down the line when you, when you actually try to implement those changes. All right. Good to know. I am very, very, very interested in what you had said about there's more that we could be doing in our camps with dealing with trauma. I currently work at a year round school in Kansas city, a title one school, and we have just now adopted trauma informed learning. Great. And I have noticed just a huge difference in that we're not necessarily putting all of the, the re 
the responsibility on the behavior, we're putting all the responsibility on the child. And so I've just, even within the last three weeks that I've had of us starting our school year, seeing a huge difference in that. I would love to hear what your thoughts are in dealing with trauma at camp and how we can do a better job of doing that as well. Yeah, I'll preface this with, I'm not an expert in trauma-informed care, but I do recognize the trend. And looking back at the history of summer camping, there is this uh, recurring pattern of the, the design of summer camping and resident camping meeting the needs of society as a whole, whether that's you know in the, in the industrial age in the late 1800s or during wartime, or when two parents started working in the 70s and 80s, you know, you saw these, these changes in the camp business model, if you will, or in the programming model, which I believe we're, we're kind of in the throes of a, of a change right now as a result of the, the pandemic reset and all of the new technology and, you know, all the, the new pressures that kids face. And I think, you know, from my own personal experience with two kids who go to Camp Corey, I know that they've been through a lot and it's so therapeutic for them in the summer, so much more so than it was for me. For me, it was an adventure. For them, it is their destination, right? It's the thing they, they look forward to every year. It's what clears their mind. But the camps could be much more intentional about dealing first and foremost with the collective trauma of the, of the pandemic. Well, not only the pandemic, but now we have, we have world wars. We have, you know, we're inundated with media and press that the likes of which no one has ever seen on the, on the face of this earth, right? And so it's, it's overwhelming for adults and it's, it's certainly overwhelming for kids. I'm not saying that summer camps should take that head on and, right? and they shouldn't be the therapy or the therapeutic you know, response to that, but they mm-hmm. should support kids at the very least recognizing what's going on in, in the world and meeting them where they are, whether that's bringing in professional counselors who are on staff even year round or credentialing staff members in a different way. You know, very often we're bringing in a 17 year old off the street and making them a summer camp counselor with one week of training. But what if you had a requirement that 50% of your staff had certain certifications with dealing with social and emotional learning or trauma-informed care or that sort of thing, right? It becomes a little bit of a career builder in that respect. If you're training 20-year-olds in trauma-informed care or in in social-emotional learning, they're going to use that for their whole careers. And we have this great opportunity now to start to shift that model. And, you know, there's other things that we could be doing. It's just a matter of having the conversations. I don't know the answers, right? But mm-hmm. I can ask the questions and start to find, you know, the way forward. And, and that's what I'm really interested in doing. Absolutely. I know back in my resident camp tenure, the biggest surprise that came to me during the week was usually about that Tuesday or Wednesday mark during a sessional week of camp, because that's when campers would feel the most comfortable at camp and would start opening up about their trauma. And even at a camp in the middle of nowhere in Southwest Missouri, there is still trauma and these kids are still experiencing that. And it's amazing when you put a kid in an environment where they feel safe and comfortable, where they feel open enough to talk about it and to be able to kind of work through some of that. And I think you're right. We just need to be mindful that, yeah, we do create a safe space for our youth to be able to talk about it and to not be put off about it. Just to know that, yeah, our, the kids that are coming in are dealing with trauma. And we should be helping our staff members just maybe a little bit more on how to be able to deal with that. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Reflecting upon my camp 
career, you know, just being a camper, I realized how potent resident camping is. You get one week or two weeks to <laughs> lift all the constraints and limitations that you have on yourself and be part of something very unique and compelling. And your life can change in that one or two weeks. And I think we all inherently understand that as summer camping professionals or, you know, however we work with camps, we understand the power of it, but can we leverage that potency in a way that changes the lives of the, of the campers like that you're talking about that have trauma in a meaningful way. That's not just about listening, but really is about putting them in a situation where they are going to feel empowered when they leave camp and they're going to feel differently about themselves and better about themselves. So we can go above and beyond just treating or just being aware of trauma and actually design a potent life changing, compelling experience. And I know many camp professionals are trying to do that. And it's really exciting. Yeah, that's, it is very exciting. I think we're definitely moving forward in the right direction for there. Well, let's talk a little bit about your book, Today's Innovator. Uh, tell us a little bit about the inspiration going behind writing this book and who might this book be for? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about it. Like I said, I left the corporate world in 2016 and I was midlife crisis moment. But like you pointed out, I had a very supportive family <laughs> who helped me understand that you know I could take the time to figure out what it is that I wanted to do going forward. Some of what I wanted to do, in, in retrospect, I took about a year off from doing anything, in fact. And then I looked back and I said, from my career to this point now, what have I carried forward and what have I left behind? And I realized anything that was financial services related, I completely left in the rearview mirror and I never looked back and I, I won't go back to financial services. It's not, it wasn't important to me, but this idea of innovation stuck with me and I continued to get calls with, from corporate leaders or adjacent industries, nonprofits, people asking for help with innovation. And I had to truly kind of understand what is the draw there. You know, it's got this, this curb appeal. The word has a lot of curb appeal, right? People look at it and say, yes, I want that. But what is it truly that they're asking for? And really what it comes down to is change. And so when you ask an organization to innovate, what you're asking them to do is to create a result that they're currently not on track to create. Uh, so it's a very challenging problem right out of the gates to say that I'm going to be innovative is to say that I'm going to produce something that I don't know how to produce. So the book was an effort to help people with that problem. The subtitle of the book is, is how to create a culture, an environment where innovation can thrive. And really that's kind of the core lesson is when you're trying to change, the environment has to be just right for that change. And it's up to the leaders inside of an organization to create that environment where the customers, employees, or any stakeholder in that change is going to recognize and appreciate and be part of the change process. So that it was a little bit of a bait and switch, right? It's about innovation, but really is about how do you set up the environment to allow for people to process change, come along for the ride, be involved in the creative process, contribute you know, their time and their energy and feel proud of the change that, that you're creating. You asked who's this for? It really is for like leaders of organizations who are trying to create change. There were four parts of the book. One focuses on culture, one on strategy, one on innovation process, which is all what, what we all think about when we think of innovation, which is brainstorming. And then the fourth part I called the profile of today's innovator. And it really is a personal development look at who do you have to be in order to drive innovation inside of a complex organization. If you're interested in those eight behaviors, I wouldn't recommend the book. I'd recommend going on my website, todaysinnovator.com, and there's a free assessment there, and you can get familiar with the model. Um, 
that we use. And it really is just a behavioral model for driving change. And that's what, what it's morphed into. And my focus has gone away from the corporate world and is now squarely in the nonprofit space, uh, trying to help social entrepreneurs uh, or entrepreneurs, if you're inside of an organization, drive change in the social space, because that's where the highest leverage opportunities are. Wow. Yeah. And you said this assessment is free. Anybody can take it online. It's still in kind of the beta stage. You don't get an immediate response. I have to run through some calculations in the back end and you'll get it within a few days. Okay. Well, I will definitely leave the link to that in our show notes so that Thank our listeners can see that and take the assessment or buy the book. Well, my first fun campy question is what is your favorite camp song? Oh yeah. I kind of dreaded this question because I know that you're going to try to make me sing, but I, I, <laughs> I'm going to hold out. You know, I mentioned that Camp Corey was a sailing camp and there was this ritual for, uh, at least when I was there, I don't know if it still holds today, but which I think many, many people are familiar with, but essentially it's this song that builds verse after verse. And eventually you're saying something like at the end, there's a germ on the fly and the hare and the wart and the frog and the bump and the branch and the log and the hole in the bottom of the sea. Um, and you've, you've built to that point. So it's a very long song. And why it's my favorite camp song is not because of, of the singing, but it's because of the, the ritual that we had around it. So while these sailing counselors would stand up there leading the camp in song, there would be a few other counselors who were up to no good trying to douse them in water. And <laughs> the, you know, within a few years, they were very privy to it and they didn't want to get doused in water. And so they would find ways to dodge that. So we had to get more creative, we as in who, were, who was trying to, to douse them in water. And I remember one instance where we actually wired up a hose to a nearby building and hid the hose underneath the floorboards. And, you know, as soon as they were singing the song, we turned it on, jammed our thumb in the hose and everyone got sprayed. And, that, you know, that's the type of fun you know, that you wouldn't experience anywhere else in life. And I just I look back on it very fondly. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that story. I appreciate it. I won't make you sing the song, but <laughs> <laughs> I have many people who come on. They're like, I am not a singer. Do not make me sing. I'm like, okay, not everybody's a music teacher like me. It's fine. <laughs> well, my next question for you is what is your favorite camp meal? Yeah, I'm probably an outlier in this one. Great camp meals on the menu. Uh, and a lot of people found this particular meal very off-putting, and it was tuna melts. So this was a warm tuna salad with mayonnaise with melted American cheese on a hamburger bun. And a lot of them would not get eaten, and that left so much more oh. for me. And so I might eat four or five in a sitting, and so I looked forward to tuna melt day because it was the day that I was really indulgent. Um, and, you know, so, just hearing myself say it, it sounds disgusting, but uh, you know, <laughs> it was, I looked forward to it in a way that I can't describe. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It must not get very hot in New York then during summer camp season. Cause I'm thinking like in a hot Missouri camp, like that would be, it's like a hundred degrees. We went <laughs> yeah. It was very off putting and I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> And it was warm. It was intentionally warm. This was put in the oven. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I see now. Yeah. <laughs> that makes it funny. I love that. <laughs> My next question for you is what is your favorite camp tradition? So I thought about this a little bit. It's not so much a tradition, but there's this, I guess, ritual. I would invite the listeners to close your eyes for a moment of pulling into the camp for the first time each summer. There's the sounds, the smells, the sights as you open your eyes and look around. And, and that's the obvious stuff. But there's also this kind of metaphoric crossing of the threshold that 
you would experience as a 10 year old, you know, driving into that driveway as you're pulling in for the first time, you know, each summer where you, you kind of give yourself permission to change and permission to grow and permission to thrive in a different way than you have been all year round. I always loved that first experience of pulling into the driveway of the camp and just how profound that is uh, on reflection. One of my favorite memories that I have is being a staff member and driving to camp, like the cultivating the music, the feelings, and you're absolutely right. It's you give yourself permission to grow, permission to change. What is your favorite program area on camp? Oh, yeah, Dave Cadu. And if you haven't listened to Dave's episode, go listen to Dave's episode. It's remarkable. <laughs> he talked about this as well. If, at Camp Corey, at least for me, it was always the big games, the epic games, epic, you know, themed experiences that were designed and they were so unique to Camp Corey that you couldn't just pick them up and place them in another setting. They were the peak moments of the week. There was this culture of creative program design that started maybe in the 80s and continued on for many, many decades. I hope it's still there today. I think it is. Where really the goal is to design this culminating activity, which is a large scale game and I use the term game very loosely because it could be a performance. It could be something where you're building something. It could be just moving from station to station, unlocking a story. But it's a, so powerful and so magical in the Camp Corey history and, and zeitgeist that I have to bring it up. And, you know, it's the thing I always look forward to. Yeah. Oh, I, I do love those as well, too. So, yes. Yes. If you haven't checked out those epic games, do so. It's, the website is absolutely incredible. Well, I'm wanting this podcast to go on for a very long time. So I ask all my guests, who should I interview next? We had the great opportunity to work with the camp in Maine. It's called Agassiz Village. It's in Poland, Maine. There are two people there who are very influential in who are living in Maine, who don't typically have a chance to attend something as special as a resident camp. They're doing God's work. Camille Ridge and Lisa Carter. Camille is the full year program director. Lisa's the executive director. And they've led this, uh, this rejuvenation, I won't call it a turnaround, but a rejuvenation of the camp to be so much more intentional and values-driven programming perspective. Camille in particular, in the first summer that they reopened post-pandemic, very similar to my story that we started this podcast on in 1997 when the, the camp director left uh, in the off-season, Camille had that same experience. The camp director left in the off-season and she was brought in, in with a week's notice to act as interim camp director, the first Ooh. year opening after a pandemic at you know age 23 or 24, whatever she was at the time. And she absolutely knocked it out of the park. I can't think of a better person to recommend that you talk to just because she has stories to tell. She's seen it all. She's transforming lives and it's just such a powerful story. Thank you so much. I look forward to connecting with her and hopefully getting her on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, is there anything exciting that's happening in your life that you'd like to promote or just share with our listeners? Uh, I mentioned that, that Dave Gadu and I are getting out to conferences. We're trying to bring some fresh thinking on topics like large-scale game design. I talk a lot about, about empowerment, which I think is a thread through all of the stuff that I do. Values-based programming, alumni associations we mentioned, and a lot more that we're just keep developing more content. So I would say come to camp conferences and seek us out and you know find us and, and share your experiences with us because we want to learn. And we're in learning mode all the time. Great. Thank you so much. Well, if people want to find you or contact you or have questions for you, how can they go about doing that? 
Yeah, I wanted to mention I have a, a newsletter on, on LinkedIn called Drive Meaningful Change that anyone can follow. It's not specific to summer camping, but I do keep it wide open enough that the lessons that I share there could apply in the summer camping space. It really is kind of pointed at driving meaningful change in the world. So what are some of the, the things that, that you can use to improve your own skill set or your own tool set as you try to change the world around you? So certainly you can follow me there, contact me through LinkedIn is a great way to go, or from my website, todaysinnovator.com. Any of the email addresses on there come to me. Awesome. I will make sure to link all of that in the show notes so our listeners can find you. Well, Aaron, that was all the questions that I had for you. Were there any final questions, comments, or thoughts that you wanted to share while you're on the Camp Kids podcast? Well, thank you for having me. I love talking shop. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate the work that you're doing. It's clear that you celebrate camping and you celebrate your guests. So thank you for doing that, giving them this platform to shine, you know, the more light that all of us can shine on the importance and impact that summer camps and resident camping in particular can have on youth, the better off we'll all be. You know, we talked about camping being in this transitionary period. And I, I think through conversation, you'll start to unlock some of the themes that are important, maybe people aren't talking about. So keep doing what you're doing. I love it. I would also encourage people to stay involved in your camps after you get out, because it can be this incredible source of community and it can help you with identity and, and feeling like you're part of something outside of your, your nine to five job. And so that's an important part of my life. I hope that others follow. All right, Camp Kids, that was Aaron. Make sure to contact them if you have any questions and check out all the links in the show notes. If you are enjoying this podcast, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Let's keep our Camp Kids community growing by spreading it to others who are also a part of the camp community. Please leave a rating or review, preferably a five-star rating so that others can find our podcast. Later this week, I'm dropping a shorter episode that is all about alumni gatherings, going a little bit further into it than we went into this interview today. That's all that I have for you for now, but remember that this is good night and not goodbye.